You're listening to a Sin podcast. You can listen to this show live by tuning your radio to 90.7 or online at sin.org.au. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what was right. Represent. 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 You're listening to Represent. Hi, Brendan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Would you like to start by introducing yourself and explaining some of the work that you're doing at the moment? I would be delighted to. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Brendan Crabb is my name. My, My main job is to direct a medical research at Public Health Institute called the Burnett Institute. It's based in Melbourne, but... um, has a lot of people around the world, actually, but especially in the region who are our staff members. Um, my, my sort of lifetime job is as a scientist uh, working on malaria, and I still do that, and other infectious diseases um, in, a, in a small way, but that's still kind of, I guess I feel the only thing I really know anything about, uh, really. And the third job is to uh, chair the Australian Global Health Alliance, which is the peak body representing global health institutions in Australia. And I guess the central theme of everything I do is to mix science and knowledge and the generation of new knowledge, especially around infectious diseases, with issues of equity and fairness. You know, that, um, for example, in my own specialty of malaria, it's still such a problem because it's technically difficult you know we don't know we don't have all the answers and it's also a disease of poverty you know if uh, it drives poverty and it's because of poverty so those two things you can't solve malaria without solving both of those problems and and that's really become sort of my life's interest awesome thank you so much for that insight um so tell us a bit about your work with COVID-19 so of course, COVID-19 comes along and nobody's got any experience in COVID-19 because it's a completely new um, virus, at least for people. It wasn't new for animals. Um, we just didn't know about it. It came across probably from bats originally into, into people. And because myself and many in my institute and my colleagues all around Australia and the world uh, work on pandemics of the past and present, um, Things like tuberculosis and HIV, of course, was the big pandemic of the past. We got very involved in in COVID. And um, so I've been involved ever since, uh, since those very first days back in sort of January, February 2020, when we had to decide where's a world, not we, me, but where's a world had to decide what we were going to do. And, you know, we've had a few false starts uh, with pandemics in the last 20 years. We had two versions of this virus that were a bit different. SARS, you might remember, this is called SARS-CoV-2, but SARS-CoV-1 or SARS came up about 15 years ago, a bit longer, 
And then there was another virus called MERS, which is related to it. Both of those were much more lethal than this one. In other words, if you got infected, you were in trouble. And then this one comes along and wasn't quite as lethal, but much more transmissible. So the world had to decide, what did it do? Did it really shut those viruses down? Or did it sort of try to continue on with life? You know, And the biggest problem with how we dealt with this virus as a world is that we kind of chose not to shut it down early, in my opinion. And hence, um, this less lethal virus um, became, of course, much more lethal because it infected you know, almost every second person in the world and, and is still going two and a half years later, even though if you actually get it, your chances of dying are nowhere near as high as, as those other two viruses I mentioned. But, of course, the chances of, uh, of you getting it are thousands of times more. So that's how I got involved in COVID and ever since been trying to manage, well, what do we do given that we let the cat out of the bag? What do we do to uh, move to a, a phase where, where this virus doesn't dominate our lives? And we haven't quite got to that point yet. Yes. I, yeah, I would tend to agree. Um, can you take me back to like the first few days um, in February in 2020 and like describe what it felt like for you? Yeah, look, I remember um, one point in particular, even though um, I'd been aware of the virus throughout January, and just as I had these other two viruses, SARS and MERS, sort of 15 to 20 years earlier uh, emerging, well, we better watch this in, in China, what's happening, talk to my colleagues and so on. And then we started to see, uh, still in this, in my vague memory time, we started to see what was happening in Europe, actually, outside of China, but particularly in France and Italy, you know, which had really good systems for recording and reporting on what was happening. I thought, this doesn't look good. Um, and then I remember this particular day when Prime Minister Morrison stood up and he said, um, uh, we, we don't quite know what we're going to do about this. We're, we're going to, we do know we're going to shut the borders to China at that time. It ended up being shut to other places. And, and he said some other countries are going down this, thinking about going down this route where they let this virus go through the community to create herd immunity. Now, he, he wasn't saying we're going to do that here, but he mentioned the fact that, uh, which for me was kind of a horrific thought, that, uh, that other countries are literally letting this unknown virus um, go through or were thinking about letting this unknown virus go through their community because it was mild enough. It's what I call a Goldilocks virus. You know, it's, um, it wasn't too hot and not too cold, and that's why it led people to think, Maybe we could let this virus go through. From that moment on, I sort of, I must say, I, I had a sense of panic. That when you said, ask how I felt when, when Prime Minister Morrison said that. And as I say, he wasn't at all saying that's what Australia was going to do. But it struck me that other countries are doing it, that it was feasible, therefore, for us to do it. Effectively, the UK went down that route. And that was my first, so it was my absolutely first reaction. First was just curiosity. And then on that day, I kind of went into a, you know, 
cold sweat and thought that's uh, that's it i've got to do pretty much nothing else my institute was already working on it the different scientists here doing different things but i got very involved personally as a as an advocate and advisor as a result of that um i think with colleagues i wrote to the prime minister within days of that uh and uh and you know for me i've done almost almost nothing else it's felt like for for two years yeah, well, you've done a really good job and we'd like to probably thank you for that. Um, you. So as you've kind of mentioned, you've obviously been a bit instrumental in advising the Australian government. And I guess you've kind of touched on this a little, your initial reaction. But what has it been like advising the Australian government? That's an interesting question. I really, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question before. And I, I'm not, it's not new to me to advise government. Um, the stakes have never been so high, though. Uh, and I guess the first thing is the big lesson for me, you think I'm 55, you think I'd know this, but I really have been struck that we have more than one government in Australia. You know, we have states and territory governments. And, of course, I knew that. But they have real power. Like the states especially had enormous authority over what happened. We all know that now. They could close the, you know, I'm not saying they're not collaborative with the federal government. They are. And the federal government has lots of authority but the states have a lot. So my advisory role has been to different state governments, especially the Victorian one, which is where I live, but others, and to the, to the federal government. I think my, my, my first response is that I do basically respect government. And what I mean by that is that I bring a certain expertise and a passion around that, uh, that expertise. They have to make sort of all things considered decisions that I don't have to make. And in fact, I don't even really know about, you know, many things that are outside of my expertise. Issues relating to the economy, for example. Um, issues relating to mental health or whatever it might be that, um, you know, not what I live and breathe every, every day. So I was pretty conscious of starting with a basic respect that they have to do something that I don't have to do. And in the end, they actually have to take responsibility for the decisions, regardless of whether they followed exactly what I said or what or did what I didn't say or something in between, they have to take responsibility. So I still have that basic uh, respect for government and, and that helps me kind of live with whatever happens, you know, to an extent, because obviously I get extremely frustrated sometimes. Well, not obviously, I do get extremely frustrated sometimes and other times extremely pleased and many times in between but always with the knowledge that um, I guess I'm kind of grateful I don't have to do their job, you know, the weight on their shoulders and the complexity of the decisions they have to make. I'm not sure any of us really appreciate, um, but that, that helps me and that helps me keep, keep going. Yeah. Can you touch on some of the times you felt frustrated? There's been quite a few of them. <laughs> um, Look, I'm frustrated now. We, we might come to that. Uh, I've also been extremely pleased with what's happened at, at different times. Um, I've been constantly frustrated over the, the negativity around mask wearing. You know, I don't understand that, frankly. Um, you know, no one wants to wear a mask. That I understand. <laughs> but... But it's, some, it's somehow become sort of a culture war um, beyond 
what makes practical sense to me, which is, you know, if you're in a relatively high risk situation, you're on a tram or you're in a, you know, you know, in a room full of people and there's a lot of COVID around, wearing a high quality mask seems to just be a no brainer to me, but, but uh, it, it seems to be um, a battle that goes beyond logic. So that's been a thing that's really frustrated me. And I don't think government has known how to handle that very well um, and has released what they call restrictions, what I call public health measures, uh, like mask wearing, um, like testing. You know, testing and isolating is incredibly powerful. So if you're positive, if you can keep yourself away from other people for, for seven to 10 days sort of thing, um, you stopped, and now with, with Omicron, you stopped another potentially 12-plus people getting it, right? That's very uh, great. Thing. And if you multiply that over thousands of people. So a big frustration is, is the withdrawing, firstly, the labelling of measures as restrictions. Like we don't label wearing a seatbelt or having to have a licence or, um, you know, adhering to a 50 or 60 kilometre speed limit as a restriction. And they're, they're the ways that I see some of these public health measures. So I think my... My main frustration at the moment is seeing these measures as restrictions and therefore reluctant to, to use it, to do it. My second one, which is probably my top one, started about the middle of last year, middle of 2021. Um, Australia still had this policy of uh, what we called zero COVID, which was, which was no transmission in the community um, until people were high enough vaccinated. And you might remember that the virus escaped a few times uh, in the middle of last year, it escaped um, from sort of our border protection mechanisms in New South Wales, and anyway, got, got out and uh, the rest is history. Um, we talked about the importance of living with COVID in inverted commas, uh, and that sounds great, you know, but, but it really got used um, as an excuse to uh, relax, you know, as an excuse to do, apart from vaccination and our attitude, Australia's attitude to getting vaccinated has always been fantastic. But, but the living with COVID mantra uh, has been incredibly destructive to me. It's, it's sort of been used to uh, belittle Australia's policy of, of uh, no community transmission, a policy that saved, um, if, if Australia was the United States, we would have had 100,000 more people die. If we were the UK, we would have had about 60 or 70,000 more people die than we did. And it was that policy of no community transmission that allowed that in an environment where, not sure where you are, Mimi, but where most Australians I'm in didn't have, you're in Melbourne, I'm in yeah. Melbourne too. So this does not apply to you and me. But most Australians hardly experienced any lockdown uh, and they didn't have any COVID and they didn't have any lockdown. Um, Victorians, of course, put in huge hard yards, you and me included, and, and so we don't quite see it um, that way. But one of the things we did, apart from protect a lot of Victorians, is allowed the rest of Australia to live relatively COVID-free for the best part of 18 months to two years. So, so that um, uh, the ease with which we dismissed that 
in this so-called living with COVID mantra, we've got to get with the rest of the world and live with COVID, was enormously frustrating to me. What I felt was that we needed to um, get into a position where we were sufficiently well vaccinated and we had publicly debated sort of how we would release those handbrakes. And, and we were with the Doherty, you might remember the Doherty modelling sort of thing, which was this modelling that the Doherty Institute and others did. So we were getting there. Anyway, we, we ended up um, opening, I thought, too early. Uh, and especially given that Omicron came along and we didn't modify what we were doing. And so Omicron then went through and infected a very large proportion of Australian population. And we ended up with sort of three and a half thousand people die in that wave. We had, you know, hospitals um, under enormous strain, our whole health system under enormous strain. And you might remember, same with our economy more generally, you know, we couldn't get our supermarket shelves stacked and so on. And that's because people were off sick. And we're in the middle of a wave like that again, the second form of Omicron, so BA2 form. So I would say living with COVID philosophy and, and seeing simple public health measures as inverted commas restrictions are my two big uh, frustrations amongst many things that are positive, many things that I really like about what Australia did. So this living with COVID, um, it's kind of the way, I guess, you could say we're handling this pandemic now. Do you think that this is the most effective way we could handle it? Or what would you like to see different? Because you obviously sound like you don't really agree with it. What would you like to see different? Well, I, I do need to say that um, to underscore before I talk about how I'm a bit critical of what's happening now as to how supportive I was of before. You know, Australia is one of the only countries in the world, there are very few, where nearly every um, eligible person had been vaccinated or had the opportunity to be vaccinated at least to two doses before they ever saw the virus. Now, that's amazing, you know, and that's why we were so far ahead of the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, with a few exceptions. So spectacularly good performance. Um, then we went into this living with COVID. Now, li living with COVID as a phrase is fine. I, I just think it gets euphemistically used for um, the pandemic is over or almost over, vaccines are enough, um, let's get on with our life as before. It's euphemistically used for that. We're living with COVID to me or learning to live with COVID should be you know, an emphasis on the learning. We're not back where we were. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you know, the pandemic comes from around the world where there's a lot of new viruses still evolving you know omicron is a new form of COVID, and we'll have new forms again um we have to face the reality that the the virus is still impacting significantly on our community and say how can we live with COVID by minimizing its impact you know by accepting that we'll be doing some things like the COVID equivalent of seat belts and car registrations and licenses and speed limits um for some time yet and that's what living with COVID is and at the moment we have a apart from a vaccine there's really not much you need to do but actually there's some really great things the first thing and most important thing uh, we can do apart from getting vaccinated please get vaccinated and understand you need 
your third dose because Omicron, unlike Delta, you need three doses. Um, Delta, you need two doses. Uh, Omicron, you need three. So it's the most important thing you can do. After that, there are three significant ways. Well, I think that we as a as a members of the general public and governments can help us. Um, the first is recognizing that the virus is transmitted by the air. We didn't really know that initially. And the dogma was that the virus was transmitted by droplets. You know, we'll have to wash our hands and stuff. And, if, and washing your hands is very important. So anything I say about airborne transmission doesn't impact on that. But it's actually transmitted largely by the air. And that means the first two of my mitigations are really important. The first one is wearing a mask. And as the virus has become more transmissible, you know, Omicron is vastly more transmissible than the original Wuhan strain. When you've got the original Wuhan strain, um, all things being equal, if you're infected, you transmit it to on average two to three other people. And those two to three other people would transmit it to two to three others. Omicron transmits to 12 others. One infected person transmits to 12 others. So, you know, as soon as you do your logarithmic maths, you know, 12 times 12 times 12, it, it's escalating so much faster than three times three times three. Uh, and, and so the reason is it transmits much more effectively. And so mask wearing, especially high quality mask wearing, what we call well-fitted N95 or so masks, um, are very, very important, definitely for the person who's sick. All masks work well for the person who is sick. But a high-quality mask works well for the person who is not sick and who doesn't want to get the virus. Um, so N95 masks in high-risk settings or equivalent sort of mask, high-quality mask, very, very important um, public health measure. The second one, which is mostly a job for governments, but I think we as public have to push them, is to, to breathe clean air. Um, the, the rooms are, I'm actually at work at the moment um, and we need to demand our workplaces have clean air, just like we do that they have clean water. You know, this the clean water revolution was 100 years ago where we understood even more than 100 years ago that infectious diseases were, many of them were transmitted by the water. And so it got regulated and clean. And, you know, we take it for granted uh, here in Australia, but we drink incredibly clean, healthy water. Um, and what COVID has demonstrated is that we need to do the same for the air. In fact, not just for COVID, for, you know, um, allergens, for other infectious diseases, for bushfire smoke, in many countries for pollutants, um, you know, that, uh, that uh, really affect the health of the people. So that means um, monitoring air quality with things like CO2 meters. It means ventilation if you can do it. It means filtering the air or UV treating um, the room. So this is largely a job for government, but I think we all have to be aware of it. So masks, clean air. And the third thing that I think is starting to be neglected is testing. You know, Testing, you think, what does testing do? Because it doesn't treat you. It doesn't prevent you getting infected and it doesn't treat you. Um, but as a public health intervention, it's incredibly powerful. I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, if you're infected, you know how to keep away from people. Now, that is amazingly uh, powerful. Um, 
we we you know so testing is important for the individual it's important for surveillance that means for the community you know and officials to know where's the virus how much is around and what sort of virus is it is it a new strain or is it the original one um so testing and action that follows from that so they're the things i'd like to see judicious mask wearing and improved mask wearing and mask wearing masks provided for free to all of us especially to those who can't afford it um you know great investment high quality air we've got to demand it governments and our workplaces and our schools and that need to deliver it and don't drop testing and surveillance and if if we do those things that's not life as it was pre-covid but we can still live we can still uh, function pretty normally and put a put a lid on um you know the out of control waves that we saw with omicron in in december and, and, and january so i'd like to see that uh, happen here in Australia. And the final thing that is the reason the pandemic is really ongoing is that we have to vaccinate the world. Um, you know, many of us have had our third dose and we're talking about fourth doses. A third of the world's population, so, you know, two to three billion people haven't had a single dose, not one dose. Um, and so that's, of course, terribly... Um, unethical it is you know for for rich countries g20 countries like australia to have allowed that to happen is damning and i could go on about that for a long time and we all have to take responsibility for that i've talked about it last in this interview instead of first you know i should have talked about it first so it's hugely hugely uh, unethical it's also a big own goal for us you know the pandemic continues because there's so much virus ampl amplification in people who are neglected. Um, and, and when you get a lot of virus amplification, you get a lot more evolution. You get new viruses, new viruses that throw up curveballs like Delta did and like Omicron did. You know, when's the next one of those going to come, come along and how bad is it going to be? And um, we know it, all we do know is it's going to be different and it's going to avoid the immunity that we have for for the previous one so it's it's just um it's hard to fathom uh why our our parochialness if that's a, it's not a word and selfishness and i mean that really broadly all of the g20 countries can allow this to happen when it's so deeply in our self-interest to fix this not just a humanitarian imperative um I never hear our political leaders talk about this, not really talk about it. Um, and I don't, I don't actually fully, even though I've, this is a lifetime area of advocacy for me, work lifetime, uh, I still don't really get that because um, it's so much in our self-interest to do something about it. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the most enlightening things that you've definitely brought up today, I think. Um, yeah, I think scientists like you who are constantly trying to say, hey, we need to help, we need to, like, um, to help all of us, we need to help those countries who are the most disadvantaged. But, yeah, I don't think politicians really like to do that stuff sometimes. Well, it's not that they do nothing. There is Australia's commits, and, and you know, I'm fond of saying we're actually quite generous. Um, but what's happened during the pandemic is, We've realised that the quantum we need 
of money that we need to provide developing countries is much bigger than we thought. Um, it's actually still very small compared to the payoff. So the, the, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which is you know, sort of one of the international bodies that um, uh, looks very closely at, at how money flows and, uh, and, and uh, across the world, you know, thinking about the global economy, they say that by 2024, the ongoing COVID pandemic will cost the world $12.3 trillion. Now, the whole economy of the world is about $100 trillion, give or, give or take. So the ongoing COVID pandemic in the next couple of years, that's a very big chunk of the whole global economy. And the number one reason they say, the IMF says, is inequity, is the fact that the rich countries are not helping poor countries get vaccinated and helping them in other ways with their health systems to, um, to overcome the pandemic. Of course, what's happened because of the pandemic is really low-income countries are being smashed by all of their health issues, you know, maternal and child health issues. It's hard. Pregnancies are more difficult. Delivering babies is more difficult. Other infectious diseases are more difficult to handle, malaria, HIV, TB. Um, so the IMF says inequities, you know, everyone cares a lot about, you know, whether you're a, a, a very rich company on the stock exchange, very rich government, everyone cares about that $12.3 trillion cost. Um, well, it costs in the tens of billions to do something about that. So tens of billions, you know, to fix it, maybe $100 billion, um, to, to save literally trillions, it's a pretty good investment, uh, you know. So it's it's illogical for us to be stuck in our own in our old-fashioned ways of thinking about this. So while the Australian government does commit, including you know this government and previous ones, and have done some quite generous things, our mindset is still in the old days. Our mindset of how much we should spend to support the world is still in the old days. You know, we changed our mindset very quickly to support Australians. You know, job seeker and job keeper, they were fantastic things because they said to the community, we're going to support you um, to minimise COVID. You know, we don't have any vaccines, so we don't have anything yet. So, so if we're in, in a shutdown situation or our borders are closed and your businesses are hurting, here's some support. You can argue about whether it was good enough or not, but it was a fantastic thing. That was a complete mind shift, right? We never thought like that before before the pandemic. Why not make that same mindset shift to global equity, you know, and say we're going to need to spend way more than we thought before, but the payoff is huge. You know, Australia's economy is going back strongly, is performing strongly again because we kept COVID at bay, um, you know, to a very large extent. Well, the world is a is a is a version, you know, a much bigger version of Australia, mm. and um, and we need to invest in COVID in 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 that way at a at a scale that previously we've not thought of before. Yeah, thank you. Um, I know we're running a little bit out of time, but I'd just like to ask one question more. And I know it's like not entirely your main area of expertise, but you mentioned this idea of restricting restrictions rather than public health measures. And I think that does have like a lot of connotations um, in terms of rebelling against a restriction, especially in young people. Um, and obviously with this pandemic, um, 
a massive concern with like the age group of young adults is how it's affected their mental health. Um, yeah. I wanted to know if there was something you think that we could do better to support um, these young people in the pandemic and in doing so, perhaps that could make them want to follow restrictions more. Or public, or public health, health measures, measures more. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, um, you are right to introduce the fact that I'm not uh, an expert in mental health, although I do uh, follow it quite uh, closely and many of my great um, scientists and, and clinical colleagues are um, experts in mental health. So I'm kind of to a degree parroting what they've taught me. You know, the, the first thing is that um, mental health and particularly youth mental health was an escalating problem during COVID, you know, uh, before COVID, uh, it, well and truly before COVID. And, and then along comes COVID and makes it, and exacerbates it, you know, makes it worse. And so, so it wasn't something that COVID has all of a sudden delivered this, this very substantial um, mental health issue. And then compounding that is some pretty tough things in the world, isn't there? There's, a, there's wars, um, the effects of climate change, which are there for all of us to see right now. It's not, not a future thing at the moment. And pandemics. Um, and, then, and then you're being told, you know, you your pub's closed or, you, you know, you can't do that, um, that part-time job that was earning you some money and, uh, you know, some practical effects of, of the pandemic. You know, I, I totally, totally get that. Um, so, look, I think all I can really say is that mental health and especially youth mental health needs to be elevated to the top of the pile of considerations. Um, but there's no, there's no good outcome in a pandemic, right? There's, there's, no, there's no way that has no issues for people. You know, so, for example, if we say we're not going to have any public health measures because we care about the, public, the, the mental health of people who are affected by what they see, deem as restrictions, then you have a lot more COVID. You know, at the moment in Australia, we have half a million people with COVID right now right as you and I sit here, we've only got 25 million people in Australia, half a million of them have COVID. All of them are at home, All of because they're the ones we officially know about. They're all at home and so are their close contacts. They're not, they're not going out and doing stuff. And next week, it'll be a million people, a different million people. Uh, so, so the pandemic itself, whether there are public health measures in or not, has effects on people. And we've just got to try and find that right balance. My, my view, and look, I am very conscious I sit here with privilege. Um, my job is secure. I can work in a nice comfy home or I can work in my office and, and say these sort of things. Like I'm, I'm conscious of that and probably not nearly as aware as I need to be. But I do think if we push public health measures that are minimally disruptive, you know, that nightclub, if you were really confident that the air were, air quality was good, you you know that's fantastic, uh, and there's every chance that nightclub could stay open. For for example, restaurant, um, whatever it might be. But at the moment, we can't be confident. We don't have good airborne uh, controls. Um, so, good quality air, wearing a decent mask when you really need to, 
and getting tested and isolating and asking the government and employers to support us in those things, you know, so that if you're staying home, if you're in an insecure job, where's the motive to stay home, right, even if you're sick? Uh, so that has to be considered. Um, but minimally disruptive things, what, we don't want lockdown. No one wants lockdown or anything close to lockdown. And we shouldn't need it if we apply these minimally disruptive measures. At the moment, though, I think our mindset's wrong. I think we're in a, a, a vaccine set and forget. Pandemic's almost over. Uh, the consequences of doing something about it are too great on our mental health and other thing type mindset. Um, and all that means is it shifts to another consequence, which is one of a lot of COVID, um, a lot of disease, a lot of the potential of long COVID in those half a million people who've got COVID right now. The virus will find its way to the most vulnerable people. Over 3,500 of them this year have died and we're losing 30 a day. Now we'll probably head up closer toward 100 a day again in Australia. These are phenomenal, right? So way, way bigger than any sort of flu outbreak or anything like that. So there's just no easy way in a pandemic. There's no, we can't worry about it because we don't want to anymore. Um, but mental health is hugely serious, was before the pandemic, even more serious now. And can it be elevated to the top of the pile? Yes, from a services point of view, but also from a science point of view. You know, the holy grail, as it's been described to me in mental health, is um, early detection. You know, we don't detect anything like early enough people who are going to face significant problems later in life through anxiety, through depression. Um, what ways, you know, what research will help us do that can we throw a lot at that and um and so that's what you know one of the things colleagues like pat mcgorry who i really respect sort of a driver of uh, of of headspace and origin um and many colleagues in hickey and others uh say put mental health at the top of the pile and and vastly increase the services we have uh, right now different scale um but not assume we have anything like all the answers uh, you know, especially understanding early in kids, young kids, um, who might face a problem later and can we intervene early before it's a problem? You know, that's, uh, that's science, of course, and we're not doing nearly enough. I hear good, you know, and our health minister, uh, Greg Hunt, federal health minister, has been very prominent in his support for mental health throughout his term. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of upbeat about our focus on it. I'm extremely worried about the extent of mental health issues, though, in our population. I just don't blame it all on the pandemic, and I certainly don't think it's a reason uh, for us to not take the public health measures we need to protect our community. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to me, Brendan. Um, yeah, I think we'll wrap up. Thank you. No, look, my absolute pleasure. And... Um, and really, anytime. It's a delight okay, to do it. Thank you. You've been listening to a Sin Media podcast where young people run the show.